probably safe to assume that most of us have our ideas about where the good ones come from. Hmm? The good ones in life. We know what kind of family they should come from and even maybe the particular family they come from. Or we know about the kind of schools that the good ones go to and the kinds of degrees that the good ones get. We probably know where they're from, where they live. We probably even think we know what the good ones even drive, right? Because there's certain ideas about where the good ones come from. It's common thought for us today, and I think is even common thought for Jesus' day as well. And you can hear it, can't you, in Nathaniel's question. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Because Nazareth is not where the good ones come from. And of course, now we could answer Nathaniel and say, well, just God, right? It's the only good thing that can come out of Nazareth. But it's that same thought that we know where the good ones come from. And with that thought in mind, I think we can appreciate then the fact that one day, as John the writer tells us, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. Now realize that as he is on his way to Galilee, he has to pass through a lot of other places first. Probably a lot of places where you and I might think he would go to choose his disciples, a man of his stature a man of his capabilities, the whole walking on water business, a man like him should probably go to a place maybe like Jerusalem or some other great place to find his disciples. But, John tells us, he decided to go to Galilee. Now, don't get me wrong. Galilee is probably, was probably, and is probably a nice place. I've never been there. But I imagine it's sort of a, run-of-the-mill kind of place, nothing spectacular, nothing particular about it. Nazareth is in Galilee, Nazareth being the place where Nathaniel asked, can anything good come out of that place? So it may, may be one of those places you don't mind visiting, but you don't want to live there. And I'm assuming that when I say that, but it seems important for us to realize that Jesus decided to skip all those other places in between on his way and go to Galilee. And it's there that he would go to find disciples for himself. Now, in this passage that we read, there's a lot of finding going on, right? Jesus found somebody. Philip found somebody. Philip told somebody that he found that he found somebody. And this idea of being found is very important. But it's Philip who is found first. Jesus finds Philip in Galilee and tells him, follow me. Philip does, right? Then Philip helps Jesus out. Good job, Philip. He goes out and finds Nathanael. Now, here's what's funny about this. If, if you look at John's telling of the story so far, Jesus has five disciples. And he's only asked or told one to follow him. Before, John the Baptist was out with his disciples one day, and Jesus came trotting along. And John said, look, there's the one. Two of John's disciples decide to follow Jesus. One of those disciples goes and tells his brother, hey, look who we found. That's three. Jesus finds Philip, tells him, follow him. And then Philip goes out and finds Nathaniel. 
This is pretty easy for Jesus, this disciple-making business. Because all you got to do is tell one person, now all of a sudden you got five. It's kind of like preaching on Sunday morning. Do y'all realize this is my job? This is like so easy and it's so fun. And that's what Jesus is doing. One person he tells to follow me, and all of a sudden he's got a whole clan. But there's something important I think we can take from that part of the story. Something very important to the life and mission of the church. Someone once said that we, as the church, have done a great job at marketing Jesus. But we've done a horrible job at selling him. Somebody like our friend Don or anybody else in sales can probably really fill us in and tell us what that really, really means. But I think most of us can at least appreciate that thought, that we have done a great job at marketing Jesus, but a terrible job at selling him. Think of it this way. We've got bumper stickers. We've got DVDs and concerts. We've got music. We've got books. We've got book markers. We've got book stores. We've got journals. We've got television ads. We've got television shows. We've got our ads in the newspaper. We have our Facebook accounts. We have our website. We have all these ways to market it, Jesus. We put cute little sayings about Jesus on pencils and keychains. We've done a great job at marketing Jesus. Now, I think most of those things are probably important things that we should be doing. But the reality is the church as a whole has then done a horrible job of actually selling Jesus, being the one to go to another and say, this is what Jesus is about. This is what Jesus has done for me. This is what Jesus has shown me. And it's something that the early disciples understood. And it's, it's been true throughout history, and I'm convinced it'll be true for the rest of history, that the most effective way that people will come to know Christ, will come to experience God, is when you and I tell them, Come and see. So you can put that on a bumper sticker all you want. You can put it in your chain email letter. You can pass out pencils all you want. But unless you are willing to sell Jesus enough and give someone else the invitation to come and see, most likely they won't hear you. That's something the early disciples understood. There's something else about them and their call that they understood, I think, that is beneficial for us this morning. And it's the fact that the God that calls us knows us. It's a thing we've seen in Scripture before that we as people see the outside appearance. And we use the outside appearance or the appearance of things to judge people or to honor people. We see the outside, but God sees the inside. And apparently what is on the inside is what matters most. We've seen that. It's all throughout Scripture. And here we are again with the idea that God calls us and God knows us. Now, somewhere along the way, the fact that God knows us, knows everything about us, somewhere along the way, that became a scary idea. Because we are afraid of what God knows about us. 
If God knows about me what I know about me, I'm going to be in trouble. Sisters and brothers, Psalm 139 is the great reminder that God indeed does know every single thing about us, but loves us anyway. Amen. Anybody? See, for the psalmist, it's a wonderful idea that God knows him and has known him even before he was ever born. The psalmist is praising God for that, not being fearful, not thinking, oh, no, do you think God even knows about that? The reality is, yes, God knows about that, too. But God knows everything about us and loves us. And it's good, friends, that God knows us because then God knows where to find us. Sometimes people get amazed and they say things like, well, I don't know how God knew I needed to hear that. Duh. Because, one, it's God. Two, God knows you. God knows what you're going through. God knows what you're facing. God knows what you're dealing with. God knows what you're trying to do. God knows every single thing about us. The God that calls us friends knows us, and that is something to celebrate. And it shouldn't be a surprise. They ever trip you out how mama knew where you were going to be? They ever scare anybody? But how did mama know that? Because mama knew you. I remember one time I was in middle school, and one day we had a substitute. This is a cool substitute. You remember he had the, the handlebar mustache and everything. Cool guy. And we had him several times in other classes, so we, we knew him pretty well. And this was the time when, in school where we still walked as a class everywhere together, and me and a couple of friends of mine, we decided we didn't want to go wherever they were going, so we kind of held ourselves back and went our own way. Now, I don't know where we went or what we did. Even if I did, I wouldn't even tell you. But anyway, so we did our own thing. And I think we thought we were pretty smart. We got away with it. Didn't even, they didn't even know we were gone. But I'll never forget coming around one of the corners of the school in the hallway. There was that substitute teacher, just kind of, Chill, just sitting, standing against the lockers, nonchalantly. Really freaked me out because he kind of checked his watch like we were right on time or something. He knew where we were going to be. That's a funny image, I think, and a great image, but I also think there's something wrong with that because I think that's the image that a lot of us have about God. That since God knows us so much, oh, God's just waiting around the corner just waiting for you to fall on your face, just waiting to say, I told you so, just waiting to get you. But friends, that's the substitute teacher. That's not God. We know a word called grace. And God is graceful. Amen? God is graceful. God knows everything about us and waits but isn't waiting to beat us upside the head. He isn't waiting to catch us. See, I love that Philip went out and called Nathaniel. Philip heard this grace call, I think, and he immediately apparently went out to find Nathaniel. And I love what he tells him. One, I love it because I think that's what we're supposed to do. We've been offered this grace, and it's not enough for us just to keep it, we're to share it, come and see. But I love what, 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 what uh, Philip tells Nathaniel. He tells them, come and see what we have found. 
Now, if I were to go back and read the story, if I got the story right, Philip didn't find anything. Jesus decided to go to Galilee one day and found Philip. Philip didn't find Jesus. Jesus found Philip. Y'all with me? You see the difference there? We say that a lot today. We tell people, you just need to find God. God's not lost, y'all. Sometimes we say, well, we're lost. The reality is, as God's people, no, we are not lost. Because God has not lost track of us. We have not fallen off God's radar. We have not done so much to make God upset that God has said, I've had enough of you. I'm done. We have not turned God off. We are not lost. We just don't know God's looking for us. We just don't know that God is waiting for us with those graceful arms. We aren't lost. We aren't lost. I know we sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, da-da-da-da-da. I once was lost, but now I'm found. But friends, we are not lost. So your life is probably a lot like mine, believe it or not. You probably have things in your life that you are not proud of things in your life that you wouldn't want anybody to know about. But remember this. You are still fearfully and wonderfully made by God. And the God that created you that way is the God that knows you and loves you. Now Jesus, Nathaniel is sort of surprised by Jesus. Jesus, as Nathaniel comes around that corner, says, oh, I know that guy. I'm paraphrasing. I know him. Nathaniel says, how do you know me? Where did you get to know me? And I think the impression that John gives us about what Jesus said to him is, hey, buddy, I've known you for a long time. I know all about you. Where did I get to know you? I created you. I know you. And, of course, Nathaniel responds and calls him the son of God and becomes his disciple. And Jesus tells him, oh, you think you were impressed because I knew you? Well, guess what? You ain't seen nothing yet. Because a life with me is a life full of wonder and amazement. See, friends, the call of grace has been given to every single one of us. And all there is left to do is to follow God. And that idea that we have not seen anything yet is the life that God has for us. What I see in the church today is that so many of us as God's people, we don't have that life. We have a pretty boring Christian life where we think life with God is just about coming to church on Sunday morning, wearing our Sunday best and having a seat and coming to listen to some big head preacher talk. Friends, that's boring. A life with God, though, will astound you. A life with God will take you places you had no idea you would be ready to go, to do things and to change things, to transform the world by the grace and the power of God through the working of the Holy Spirit. That is the life that God has for us. And there is nothing boring. So I think we need to pray. 
Because I don't think a lot of us in the church have that life. We just wake up, try to go on about our business, maybe think about God when we're able to, maybe even think about church, maybe do some things, maybe even get ourselves here on Sunday morning. But friends, that is all. That is not all God has for us. So I think we should pray together and ask God to make us new today so that we could all have the life God wants for us. Would you pray with me? God, there is a life that you have offered to us. A life assured of your presence and a life assured that you know us. Teach us, God, to be thankful that you know us. To be thankful that we can know you. And help us, God, to respond in faithfulness. To then offer our life to you. Forgive us, God, when we've tried to make our life be other things. When we've tried to fill our life with things that do not matter. With things that will rust away. With things that will be here today but gone tomorrow. Things that are not of you. And help us, God, today to begin to have the life that you want us to have. In the name of the Son, in the name of the Father, in the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.